welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist Andrew Sinewick. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everyone, to episode 22 of the High Action Podcast. 22 episodes. Perry, how about that? 22. What were you doing when you were 22 years old? I wasn't making a podcast. John, what were you doing when you were 22? We were in Berlin when I was 22. Wow. Um, yeah, we were in Berlin. And rest in peace, Tom LaBanche, who passed away this week, Perry. That's right. Yep. Although I knew some people when I was 22, which is uh, now 15 years ago. <clears throat> and some people I knew back then were doing podcasts. And I was always like, really? You're doing a podcast? Like, why would you waste your time doing a podcast? I didn't think much of it. But I, you know, some people were early adopters to this very cool form of communication. In the last year, my podcast intake has like quadrupled. So I'm sure we have, you know, we kind of want to hear from our listeners. If you can like leave comments or reviews, like how much has your podcast intake increased in the last year? Mine, it's like, I like when I find a new podcast and I go, oh, there's three seasons already. And you listen through it and then all of a sudden you're caught up and then you're like, I have to wait every week? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're on episode 22 and we've got a real special guest today, good friend of mine and um, really, really insightful cat. I'm kind of curious, what, what were, uh, John, what was something that you took away from talking to Andrew Sinewick? Man, how how many different ways there are to make a living as a guitar player? Because his career is, you know, we're we've been in LA about the same time, kind of growing our careers about the same time in different ways. And Andrew and I've been on on some sessions together, and then um, you, I know you too, Will. You you mm-hmm. and Andrew have tossed around some gigs back and forth, big band stuff. And man, it's just interesting because my career objectives kind of my dreams and what I'm doing are, are different than what mm-hmm. his are. And yet we're both doing careers with, with, with the guitar in our hands. So it's, it was cool to kind of shoot the breeze with him and go from the ground up where he made his choices along the way to kind of go one direction. As he was talking, I thought a lot about the choices I've made the last decade and a half that have kind of put mm-hmm. me over in, in another area a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Perry, how about you? What were some, what were some highlights for you? Uh, well, kind of just adding to what John was saying, uh, when I listened back to this interview, which we did in August, which right. is a while ago. So sometimes it's cool to kind of listen back to these uh, interviews we've had in the archives. But hearing Andrew talk a little bit about coming to LA and experiencing sort of the opportunity that he felt uh, was here for him in Los Angeles, I thought was really cool because oftentimes if you're a real serious you know, musician, you're making a choice between maybe a few different cities, not just LA and New York. Maybe you're thinking Chicago or New Orleans, or you're thinking Paris or London or wherever in the world. There's probably a couple of cities that you could envision yourself building your career. Sounds like for Andrew growing up on the East Coast, it was maybe New York or LA. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing he talks about is being in LA and there just being a lot of opportunity in various ways, which I think uh, echoed with 
how you feel too, Will. Totally. And how I felt when I was living there. It is kind of like a little musical mecca in Los Angeles in a really cool way. Now for me, I moved from LA to New York because I was wanting to be more focused into uh, a, a sort of a jazz career, mm-hmm. a jazz path. Uh, and so I think there's just sort of trade-offs and differences depending on uh, at least LA or New York. And for Andrew, the scene in LA really resonated with him. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah. You know? One of the things that really was special to me that Andrew was talking about is when he mentioned really listening to an album for its production value, regardless of the musical content, I think, you know, I mean, this is, we're, we're basically catering to a jazz audience here. So I think it's a good reminder Take yourself out of the mindset of just the musical content when you're listening to something. Listen to the production. And even if it's like, like I mean, not to give anything away, but he was mentioning an Avril Lavigne album that had really stellar, a really stellar production team on it. And just listen to that. I mean, however much or little you utilize of it, it doesn't matter. It's only going to help your music and your insight, you know, in the studio or like, you know, opening up your ears production wise. So that was super, super useful. When you say, when you say production wise for the listeners, what are some things you're specifically talking about? Like panning or how they're incorporating outside sounds or compression or distortion or reverbs. I mean, that's something we've all been doing more logic at home. Now I love hearing all kinds of weird ways people do reverbs like when i hear a random song i'm like whoa that's like that's got such a slick tail on it you know right just little things it's yeah for me i'd also add to that it's like even if the song is four chords and the lyrics are kind of lame or the beat is what you've heard a million times or even you've heard the melody similarly Mm -hmm. a million times uh if the sounds of the instruments are cool like you're saying well if it's all put together that's sort of i think production wise maybe what Andrew's referring to as well, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and like, you know, guitarists, we've been so married to production ever since Les Paul experimented with overdubbing in the 50s. I mean, I feel like the rec- advent of recording and the guitar, I feel like the record, the modern recording studio and the, the evolution of the guitar the last 100 years have really kind of grown yeah. at a similar rate. And and like what Will's mentioning, there's so many guys I know here in LA who will listen to a recording and identify, oh, that's a Fairchild compressor on there, and that's a AKG D12 reverb plate, and that's you know like people that really can hear that, just like us jazz guitarists can be like, oh, he's using a 175, oh, that's kind of a 335 sound, and th- we have so much to learn with this. And as guitar players, um, we're kind of we kind of come up being trained to listen to a lot of the nuance of how a sound is made because you know, our instrument is still in its evolution. We are still in the the evolution of electric guitar in a lot of ways. So we're kind of wired to listen for all of these things. It's been fun during the pandemic to kind of experiment with logic and Definitely. get deeper into what, what I can do and what, what artistically is kind of in my imagination with the sound for sure. Definitely. Well, I don't know. I think, uh, I think I've bantered enough for this podcast intro. I think the listeners are sick of hearing my voice, but sorry guys, I actually led this interview, so you're going to hear much more of my voice in this <laughs> in this interview. But uh let's do it. Let's welcome Mr. Andrew Sinowick. Enjoy everybody.
like that Brian May guitar, dude. All right, I got to save all this chat for the actual <laughs> podcast because I got too much to talk about. All right, cool. Is that the? Is that the? All right, I'll stop. All right, well, we're, um, we're rolling on my end and on John's. So, welcome to the High Action Podcast. We are joined by Andrew Sinowick today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Andrew, you know John and Perry. Welcome. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are things going at House of Sin Studios? <laughs> Things are fine, you know. It's uh, we should we tell the audience that it's August of 2020, and yeah. so just for reference, if they find this a hundred years from now, they'll know the context uh, of this conversation. Have you been staying busy during this whole season? I imagine you probably have. If anyone is, it's been okay. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of plugged into to working at home before this, so yeah, so, I really you know, feel like your your setup, your amazing home studio, is like you've already been doing this for years at I was home. social distancing well before it was cool so <laughs> a boy I love it I love it well let's just start let's start at the beginning you got a guitar when you were eight growing up in Annapolis Maryland correct wow very impressive you yes did research <laughs> yes I did can you tell us about getting started <laughs> sure I mean um you know I didn't really have like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment but I just sort of always Doug music and at that time the who was on they were doing like a tommy uh reunion or not reunion but like anniversary thing that was on you know like cbs or like actual just like regular broadcast television and at the time we had just gotten like a vcr and i have two older brothers that were way into music and they had they were always like taping like the snl musical guests and stuff like that and then we just watch them on repeat so so i did sort of go oh like I, I always watch that Who thing like over and over and over again. And I saw it's like, oh, they show the drummer all the time and they show and so maybe I should be a drummer, you know. And and my middle brother played guitar already, so I thought, and we'll start a band and all this stuff. So I actually signed up at school to play the drums until I realized like, oh, that means carrying around a snare drum and playing <laughs> rudiments. And uh so like immediately I um I switched to guitar just because my brother was like, Hey, just play guitar and I'll, I'll you know show you what I know and uh, and I was kind of like oh yeah they show the guitar player a lot too uh, okay sure you know so it's kind of funny like it wasn't like the the uh, skies parted and and it was like this aha moment it was just kind of like I really dig music and I want to do something where I can do it all the time mm -hmm. and so you know at eight years old it was like oh sure like guitar it, I could do that forever too you know which is like kind of a weird thing to to think, I think, as an eight year old. But yeah, yeah. And speaking of the Who, just to mention, you've recorded with the Who. You did very recently, right? Yeah. Well, for the Who, I guess I should clarify. For the I, Who. I played on their uh, latest record. Yes, it was Man. amazing. Like ridiculous dream come true. Like, yes, pinch I'll me bet. thing. Crazy. Yeah. And you said that the first concert you went to was uh, Paul McCartney. Yes, that's yeah. that's true. Wow, you've really. Nice work. I do my homework. I very, my homework. very well done, sir. <laughs> so, talk about like you know you noted like you saw you saw his guitar player and you read his bio and you're like wow you know what a concept being being a consummate sideman and really supporting the artist and like you mentioned focusing on the music and not all of the other aspects that goes with being the main attraction. Yeah, that's you exactly said it right. I mean, they had a program that they gave out to all the uh, concert goers and uh, it had a page on each guy in the band and that's kind of like a light bulb moment where I went 
you know, I sort of understood, okay, this guy, he's like a working guitar player, and he's he played with the Pretenders and this movie and that TV show, and then he's been with Paul McCartney for X number of years. Um, and that was really appealing to me. Were you gigging around Maryland a lot growing up? Yeah, it was cool. Um, when I, let's see, I was think I was about 15 or 16, and um, I found a really great teacher who was a working guitar player, and he took me under his wing and sort of like showed me like the real, like how it really works, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, he had me um, come to gigs with him and sit in, wow. and he even was so kind to like, like if he played every Friday night at this little restaurant, let's say, he got me like Thursday night there. Wow. You know, when I was in high school, just solo guitar. And then there was another spot, another little bakery where I played. So I think I had Thursday night and then Friday night and Sunday morning at this other bakery spot. Just totally sitting in the corner and playing, you know, for like 50 bucks if they could afford it and, mm -hmm. and food or something. And like, and sounding terrible, I'm sure, and just repeating the same, like ten standards or it's and a rite of passage, man. Every exactly, yeah. Those gigs coming exactly. up. I know we've all had yeah. those, man. Yeah, I love it. But uh, dude, I mean, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world because simultaneously, you know, I was always trying to hang out with like older musicians. I kind of like that sort of thing that you're always told, like, yeah, this guy went on the road with Miles, and then he, you know. He learned it on the street, which is hilarious because it's like, yeah, I learned it all on the mean streets of Annapolis, Maryland, you know. <laughs> but yet, but I did feel like I, I really was trying to get as much of that real world thing as I could and, and hang out with guys that were actually doing it full time. And they all told me like, dude, it's cool that you're excited about gigging and stuff, but you're not going to want to do it when you're our age. I'm like, no, that's, that's all I want to do is like play play jazz for people and play you know like mm -hmm. and they're like man it gets old like try and get some like producing chops and some writing chops and so that was another you know and i i definitely like anything they told me i took to heart mm -hmm. or, you know or, or at least considered it and you know thought about like what well, does that ring true for me and certainly as i got older and people spilled beer on my stuff and <laughs> Uh, got stiffed by the uh, owner and oh, et cetera, et cetera, I started to go, oh, I see what they mean. <laughs> right, right. It's sage advice, man. Yeah. So you're growing up, you're playing guitar in Maryland, and what brought you to University of Miami? Well, I was a huge, uh, I was kind of into the shredding guitar thing, so I was real into dream theater, mm -hmm. and I was into the idea of like, if you like someone's playing, you should also study the people that they listen to. And, like, so John Petrucci would always, you know, I'd always read these, like, guitar magazines cover to cover, and he would always mention that Steve Morse was his hero. So then I sort of, like, okay, well, what's up with this Steve Morse guy? And then that really, and then he really became my hero. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so cool that he was so down to earth and just seemed like kind of a regular guy that happened to be ridiculous on guitar. Uh, and composing. And then I found out that he, uh, you know, went to the University of Miami. Right. And then, of course, as I got farther down the uh, dark jazz highway, I realized, <laughs> oh, Pat Metheny went to University of Miami. And so did Jago. And then, and then actually, with the session mindset thing on, I realized, oh, all these, like Will Lee and all these other working people went there. 
there's maybe there's something in the water. Maybe that's something I sh could you know consider. And uh, I was going to say something else about that. Oh yeah, so so I applied there, and it was like terrifying the audition process because the guy that ran the program for like forty years was just uh, he was from Texas, so he had this southern draw, and he would just it was sort of the like break you down and build you back up thing. Mm -hmm. And even in the audition, it was just terrifying, you know. Um, and then I went to visit North Texas, and I actually I really dug it. And so I was sort of having this, and I, and also there was a place, uh, Ithaca, New York, was like a beautiful town, and uh, the teacher there was uh, super kind, and also Duquesne, and I was kind of going, oh man, I don't know what to do, maybe I should, you know, and then so the week that I, I had to, to make the decision, like, okay, what's it going to be, kid, you gotta, you know, this is the deadline, Steve Morse was playing in my town, and he gave a guitar clinic. And so I was able to go and like, and I asked him a question about like, how did you, or something about, was it important going to Miami? Did that help you be successful in the music business? And he, he almost like went off on this tirade about like, well, success. I mean, here I'm at this mom and pop music store and I'm, I've been doing it for 30 years and like, what, I don't know, what did that get me? But I'll tell you, the teacher down there, Randall Dalhan, that guy is an incredible, and it was kind of like, okay, cool, decision made. Like when your hero tells you, that the teacher there is is the bomb, like, you know, game over. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the 59 Semi Hollow, and I have the OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at MarchioneGuitars.com. And you told a great story about when you were in college. You, you and I think the big band took a trip to New York, and it was a pretty eye-opening experience for you because you were kind of like toying with the idea, like maybe I, maybe I'll move to New York. Um, Completely, yeah. Well, yeah, you sort of mentioned it. There was that thing, um, IAJE, which I think now is J-E-N. Oh, okay, and, yeah. And every year they they would have this big uh, conference in a different city. And I was playing with one of the ensembles, so we got to go, which was like an incredible experience. And, you know, I was so excited, like, yeah, New York City. But by that time, I had been in, in Miami for two or three years, so I was kind of like... Uh, adjusted to the uh, the humidity and the warm weather, and I, you know, in January we got off the plane in New York City. I mean, you can imagine what a shock to the system that was. And uh, and yeah, I was with my buddy, the bass player. And we like as soon as we got out of the airport, like quick, let's grab a Village Voice and see like who's playing. And I just had this weird experience of like, like I, on the one hand it was really exciting, but on the other hand I just felt like these like all of my like, same heroes are still playing at these places, mm -hmm. and I just felt like I didn't know that there would be, like, room for me. Almost just, like, I mean, I don't have anything to say that they're not saying, and so, like, kind of like, how can I compete with that in a way, mm -hmm. you know? Man, that's a lot of forethought to have as a college student, to really, you know, think that far ahead of where can I find my place, you know, to really carve out opportunities and my ability to make a living and you know be happy and successful artistically right 
Yeah, and I mean, those two words, happy and success, are like, they mean something different for everybody, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true, very true. So what brought you out to L.A.? So the following year, that same IAJE thing was out here in L.A., and again, I was lucky enough to play in one of the ensembles where they, they brought us out to play. And maybe it's because I wasn't expecting anything, but I remember coming into LAX and like looking out the window and going like, wait, there's mountains, you know? And it's like, wow, this weather is like ridiculous. And then I knew one person who um, I had kept in touch with and he was here and kind of working and he just drove me around. And I remember we must have gone down like, it must have been Sunset Boulevard because he was driving going, okay, so there's Sunset Sound and then up the street is Capitol Records and then over there is United and then here's East West. And I was just like, oh, and it was like, that was actually a, the biggest light bulb moment maybe that I ever had because mm -hmm. I also kind of realized like, oh, all like the pop culture music that I grew up on, like all the TV themes and all that stuff came out of here and like Van Halen and all these, you know, other like guitar icon, like a lot of that stuff happened here. And, and there was like this alumni uh, get together thing at that conference and I forget exactly the particulars, but there was something like, hey, somebody needs a guitar player type of thing. And I was like, and it just kind of, it didn't end up like working out, but it was like, I realized like, oh, this is a place where like, there's kind of no limit to what you can do and how far you can go. And you can sort of like write your own story in a way. I mean, that sounds cheesy, I but agree. Can, it's almost like an a la carte thing where you go, I want to do this and that and that. And like, they can never, you know, they can be separate, and that's fine, kind of. I totally agree with that. I think L.A. is a very open-minded place that allows you to follow any number of paths and, and have room mentally to, to exist in different musical realms. You know? That's really true. And, I mean, people love to hate L.A., and, uh, and there's, you know, it's, I sort of feel like you could say anything about any town and, and look around and find evidence to back up what you're saying sure. mm -hmm. but um it really is a great place um, i agree i'll bet john agrees too 100 <laughs> percent. What, what, what about me you don't think i agree <laughs> before before we get sidetracked here so you moved here in 2004 right that's right yeah. right and i mean since then like the list of things that you've played on artists that you've played with is pretty endless you've had you've been on projects like 17 grammy winning projects how did you start getting, you know, plugged in to the scene, more or less? There was, again, like, kind of one person that had graduated from... So I stayed an, an extra two years at Miami and did um, a writing, like, music writing program. Uh, and there was one person from that program who had moved here and was kind of working. And uh, so, like, you know, whenever you move to a new city, it's just like you're just throwing paint at the wall and seeing what yeah. sticks, you know? So I uh, got in touch with him and, and went and we met and I had made a demo CD that was, uh, it was like, you know, it sounds funny to say now a CD, but it was like 30 seconds of um, straight ahead jazz and then 30 seconds of nylon string classical stuff and then quick fade out, fade into 30 seconds of tapping, you know, or whatever. And so it was real brief, but just some kind of like uh, audio representation of maybe what I thought my skill set might be. A calling card. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like a business card in audio form, you know? Yeah. 
and he took it and you know he was nice and supportive and there's always that thing it's funny i've heard the word like i've heard people go oh miami mafia and like that's complete garbage man that's <laughs> it, if anything it, get, it maybe it gets you like uh, a phone call you know but if you don't have the goods to back right, it up right like, no it's that's, that's that's garbage but uh but he he goes man he, I think we talked on the phone, maybe, or maybe I'd send him the CD first, and then we met. And he, I just have this vision of him holding it up and going, "If you can do what you did on this, you'll be fine," or something like that. Mm. And uh, and I told this story recently uh, somewhere else, but I think it's worth repeating. So you know, like the thing you always hear is like, "Well, kid, get in line when you move to a new city. You got to wait for somebody to die." Mm. So mm. this person that I had met. He, who's, he holds up the CD. He goes, "Man, if you can, if you sound like this, if you can really do all this stuff, you'll be fine." And the guy I used to use died recently, so I need a guitar player. So good timing on your end, you know. And then at the time, he was very busy doing custom uh, movie trailers. You know, they didn't all have guitar, but one of them did, which was all I needed to pay my rent that month. And then boom. And the best thing is. The thing that you find is that L.A., as big as it is, it's also kind of like a small-town feel within these different little Absolutely. camps. And he, um, you know, as as is common, he had friends who were also composers. And when they needed somebody, he'd say, yeah, try this guy. He just moved here, you know. And it becomes like the branches of a tree or something. I'm curious, as a session player in L.A., has it changed a lot since 2004 to 2020 that's a good question i mean it's for one thing when i first moved here i wasn't plugged into like uh -huh. the quote-unquote cool uh things like bigger sessions i guess you would say so it wasn't like you know and that's part of the hard thing is like people don't you're not gonna just get it called out of the blue they're not gonna call somebody out of the blue they don't know to play on some big movie it's there's just too much on the line to take that chance so the stuff I was doing in 2004 was like singer-songwriter demos, like somebody's Broadway show that never happened. I mean, I was even doing like, I mean, I would answer Craigslist ads and be like, yeah, I can produce a song for you, you know, right. that kind right. of stuff. I wow. mean, anything that <laughs> I was playing, I played bass and sang backup with, uh, in this trio, uh, that was kind of like a, um, she played piano and it was just me and a drummer. Um, well, that's a testament to your, you know, your diversity and your willingness to adapt, which I mean, as an entrepreneur, or as a musician, you know, I'm sure you would agree. You have to have at least a certain amount of like real adaptive skills. Yeah, I mean, and I, it's weird to say, but I feel like it's only gotten harder. And certainly the older I get, then I start to see like, you know, without getting off on a tangent, you start Please. to see the way that um, financial, like the, the way that money works and the way that, you know, the whole thing, people's is... upbringing and kind of the, the role of the dice, the birth lottery sets you sure. up. Um, sure. And also just, yeah, I mean, it's gotten harder. I'll just say that, I feel like. Because right, right around 2004, I mean, there was already kind of like the whole Napster crash. But there was, I feel like there was still, I mean, like there was a very strong touring scene, like, yeah people would would get still getting signed and then okay we got to put a band together and they would hold auditions and they would throw tons of money at at least a promo tour where they would put this band on the road so i would do that stuff and i mean you know just law of averages nine times out of ten those people 
nothing ever happened with their careers, so those gigs ended. But again, it's just anything you can do to uh, to pay the rent, you know. And for better or worse, I never I never got like a cold call audition huge gig where it was like great i'll i'm happy to go on the road for a long time mm-hmm. you know um and the stuff that i did get just kind of always ended up fizzling out so i never had that i mean I, there was always there, there were times when when definitely i had to go okay i can't be in two places at once what am i going to do i moved here to be a session guy i have to not take this tour unfortunately and that's right. hard to do when you're looking at an empty calendar um but having said that it's not like the Rolling Stones had called and I turned them down to play $50 sessions. You know, it was more like, you know, driving the van for this. Uh, we know all about that. Yeah. To play. Yeah, well, anyway, yeah. You get the idea. So tell us about, I mean, I think it's only natural if you're doing session work, you're going to start recording at home and being interested and in like, mm-hmm. well, I could have this basic setup at home. And I mean, you've taken that, you know, as far as you can. You have an amazing home studio, House of Sin. Tell us about developing that. And I mean, I'm sure, like, maybe in 2015, there weren't quite as many home studios as there are today. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened, actually, is, um, you know, I, I always try and be aware of, like, what 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 is my skill set? What are other people? How does that, like, compare to, like, what else is out there? And, and mm-hmm. where am I different? Where is there overlap? Just all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's dumb, but I read books up about like how people make decisions and stuff like that. Because I they're not dumb at all. Because I feel like I don't come from a place of like like I, I didn't grow up in an entertainment family. Like I, you know, it's still like I, I'm not really built that way uh, internally, and I didn't want that kind of stuff to hold me back from being able to play guitar as much as possible. And so I was on one of those gigs where like it was. It was somebody that had, um, well, I won't say who it was, but it was, um, you know, it was like we're we're slugging it out in a van driving to Utah and back and up north and, I mean, you know, playing at the Mint and playing at the Viper Room and all the things you do when, when you're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, break an artist for very little money, for long hours, kind of like, hey, we're all in this together, you know, kind of seeing it grow and then come back down and then grow a little bit more and and this artist went to do another record i must have played on one of them which was great and then he goes to do another record and after all of that he hired somebody else who wasn't like not like michael landau or something just like another kind of joe schmo and he's like and i was like kind of hurt and and he goes man yeah you know it's just um this other this other person has uh, he's got this great place where he's got all these amps set up and he's got all these guitars and you know we just felt like that was the better call and man I just thought all right if that's what I have to do how do I do it so that's and so that was actually the moment where I was like you know in a way like if some people like want to see that to make them feel comfortable about hiring me then so be it. Because sure. I, I moved, you know, I put all my stuff in my Honda Civic, and I'm not moving back. So if that's what it takes, then I guess that's the next next uh, chapter in uh, in the career. I well, guess. man, I think you made a, a great move. And I mean, I think in this time where, you know, there's no tours, there's basically no gigs, House of Sin is open for business. And I'm sure you're 
busy recording. Um, please just tell us a little bit about like developing your studio. And I know you had a guy come in and design it with you. And you know, it's it's a really amazing place. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's it's pretty um, modest, especially. I mean, look, L.A. is so expensive that you don't get a lot of room for your money. So um, so we actually went, because they, our yard is very small, so we went up over the garage. And so it's about the size of a garage, because at the time, we're kind of right on the street to where we couldn't like do it unpermitted and not have uh-huh. people notice and complain. And I, the laws have now changed, which is kind of frustrating in a way because it was like literally the day we finished they changed the thing to where now you know huh. they they changed like i forget what they call it like the density level because every you know housing is a real problem here yeah so they allow you they made it easier for you to convert your garage into a living space that being the case it was not so at the time so um so we went up and uh so it's about the size of a two-car garage plus there's a little iso booth and there's a bathroom up here Right. Um, and then That's it's wired. Room, there's tie lines down into the garage, so I have a speaker cabinet mic'd up down there. Huh. Nice. I mean, which I complete. By the way, I totally stole that idea from Tim Pierce. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, you've you and Tim Pierce played on your last album too. You've worked a lot with Tim Pierce recently. Yes, yes. We we actually just did a video that's going to come out on Saturday. So. Oh, cool. Cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, he's he's been a great um, just mentor and inspiration. So. We've been talking about you as a sideman, as a you know a wonderful supporting musician, but you're also a band leader, and we're gonna play a track from your oh, cool. most recent album, Second Story. This is not even a year old, right? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's like exactly a year old. I tried hearing your. Uh, you had like two nights at the Baked Potato, and I went one night, and it was sold out. Surprise, surprise! I should have gotten my tickets ahead oh, of time. Man, you should have let me know. Right. We're gonna be listening to Gift Horse. So great to hang like this, man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's over the, I feel like over the last year, it's been fun. I've gotten to see you a couple of times. Thanks for organizing those, um, those breakfast mornings that we've had over. Absolutely. It's fun. Uh, it's been cool to get to, I think Tim Pierce was at one of them. Tim May for certain, for certainly was. Yeah. Um, and you know, man, it's just great dude that you're taking on kind of that role in our community of bringing a lot of guitar players together. We've talked a lot about this on the high action podcast about how Los Angeles has this kind of special guitar town vibe like Nashville, mm-hmm. uh, but that, you know, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in Nashville now, and it seems like guys out there, they go check everybody out, but here in LA, like we all are kind of this community and like jazz guitarists and guys who are 
more in contemporary styles, uh, guys who are real session players. We all kind of want to hang out, talk shop and stuff. So I just wanted to, to start by saying thanks for being like somebody who's really proactive because it's, you know, it's not easy to do that. And right now it's so important for us to keep this community thriving uh, like this uh, in this setting too, man. So it's been fun to hang with you over at Sharky's and have a brunch with you every now and then. I hope cool. we can- Well, thanks for coming. You know, it, it wouldn't uh, matter if nobody showed up. So I appreciate it. I'm really curious about, um, in terms of your recording setup at home and stuff, amplifiers. And are you the kind of guy that's found over the years with all the recording you've done on all different kinds of styles and all sorts of different tracks? Have you seemed to kind of find how you can use a couple amps in a lot of different ways or do you like having like 20 different amplifiers and very use each one very specifically much like you i'm sure use guitars in a very specific way because i know you've got a fantastic array of instruments um that you use. i was always curious about that with in terms of amps yeah well like here at home um and i actually so right now i have uh four amp heads that are on a switcher and that allows me to have them all on and plugged in and ready to go to where I just, they're, they're kind of, it's actually, uh, I wired it, wired it up to this MIDI controller so I just go boom, boom, boom and, and go through them. Um, so there's, you know, it's very quick to, uh, you hit a button and you're playing through a new amp. You know, there's nothing to unplug or anything like that. Um, and I actually just got another, <laughs> a new switcher that allows me to do eight heads because four is just not enough, you know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I have, um, there's usually one that's kind of like a really great clean sound. So like right now that's my Rivera and it's, you know, you could play, um, a hollow body through it and it doesn't break up. Sounds great. And then it also has a gain channel, which is like super like new metal kind of thing, which is amazing. Uh, and then on the second amp, uh, is let's see. Oh, then that's something I I actually I got I went through this period where I, where I was trying to get way into electronics and just at least be able to like if I broke a cable like not have to throw it away but be able to fix it and resolder it. So uh, I ended up building this amp from a kit which is sort of like a matchless. So that's kind of like covers the uh, voxy territory. Um, and I go to that for like you know again like any of the kind of alt country or U2 stuff. And it's fun because it's like, hey, I built that and I'm using it. Uh, and then the third amp is this thing that's uh, built. Unfortunately, they're no longer around, but it's made by a company called Texotica, which is, I think, just like one guy uh, in maybe Austin or someplace like that. And it's sort of like a brown face uh, fender. So it's only about nine watts and it breaks up. Like if you turn it all the way up, it'll kind of do that Neil Young thing where if you play real hard, it almost like gets quieter like it compresses in a really weird way and i mean it's not like you definitely wouldn't want to have that as your only amp but if anybody uh wants anything that, that sounds like old i mean that's people oh, it needs to sound like old and dusty you know that kind of thing that's what you get all you always like get that kind of request that amp does that really really well and i have a spring reverb unit in front of it which definitely adds to that kind of old timey feel and then the fourth amp um, right now is a Soldano, which is the first real piece of gear I ever got. And uh, it, it was insanely, it's actually n- not like the top of the line model, it's the budget model, but it was insanely expensive. 
and now it's worth more than I paid for it. So, and I've had it since I was, you know, younger. So, it's been here with me, and it just it sounds amazing, dude. Those things are so great. Yeah, it's clear that like, and for the people who are listening, a lot of guitar players and stuff, I mean, it's so clear how much you've thought about your sound, and also all the different kinds of sounds that are called upon you for for your gig for what you're doing. Um, I'm curious in the chances that you get to practice which depending on I'm sure what kind of project you're working on is like nil all the way up to you have time to kind of work on a lot of your creative efforts like this fantastic record that you did. Um, do you oftentimes shed by going back and, and, and checking out guitar parts on some iconic recordings and trying to match tones? Yeah, when I, I did that a ton uh, when I kind of made the decision like, okay, I'm moving to L.A. Like the, that whole like two or two years before that maybe. And then as I was here trying to kind of get everything going off the ground, I did a ton of that. Right. Yeah, like like you would transcribe a solo, except it was like transcribing what Dan Huff played on the verse and then what happened on the chorus and then what kind of sound is he using and is it doubled, is it, you know. Yeah, and as yeah. I would, next to next to guitarists, I mean drummers probably face this too. It's like checking out all these iconic ways guys have played drums on so many of these popular recordings, you know. Um, yeah, and I will say too, like I had the benefit of when I moved here, um, those few gigs that I got. When I say gigs, I mean little session things for people. You know, I didn't have a lot going on, so I would spend like as much time as I needed uh, getting the stuff to be where I thought it sounded good, you know, or where I thought it sounded amazing. Uh, and if that meant like re-recording it, setting up the mic in a different position, you know, coming back days later, all that kind of stuff checking it out in the car, you know. Um, so it's kind of a good way to, like, proof your stuff in the real world, I guess you would say. Yeah, I, I remember having a funny chat with Dean Parks once when I met him and asking him about how he's, he's such an amazing acoustic guitar player. Yeah. As well. He's like the definitive session acoustic guitarist. I asked him, I was like, man, how did you learn all of these parts and ways of playing? He's like, man, when I was, I was teaching lessons at a music store in the 60s, all the people that were coming in wanting to know these folk songs... And I just tried to copy all these different guitar sounds, you know, and I thought that was, and he's like, by, I, by accident, teaching people how to play guitar, I learned how to do all these different guitar sounds. And then I'd go into the studio and they'd say, hey, can you play it like how Peter, Paul and Mary played it and so on and so forth. Wow. He got a lot of his acoustic chops together. And that brings me to my last question before I hand it to Perry, you know, whether we all want to or not, we all end up being teachers to a certain extent, you know. Um, some of us, I, I teach a lot in my career, and I, I love teaching. And I've, I've always wondered if you do do any teaching. But I'm curious: are there things that advice that you give younger guitarists who want to be really versatile players and stuff? Advice towards some of the skills, some of the functional skills that they should be working on at an early age to set themselves up to be a, a an effective session guitarist, or I, I don't even want to call it session guitarist, but somebody that can play in a wide range of styles too is there any advice that you give younger players like that yeah um the main thing i see and it's something that i suffered from too is um not it's almost like you the the logical kind of progression of uh said uh, guitar student is pick up guitar uh you you figure out you, you get it down to the point where you can sort of play some songs and then you sort of go down your own rabbit hole almost with blinders on and if you want to be a, a session guy or, you know, whatever, be versatile, like, you sort of have to check out a ton of different music. 
and there was this guy in Miami who uh, was like the king of guitar down there. And he's just the greatest guy and the a absolute fierce player. And uh, he said something to me, you know, this will timestamp it, but he goes, oh, have you checked out the Avril Lavigne record? And of course, dude, I'm in school at the University of Miami, so my response is, Avril Lavigne, she sucks. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, well, yeah, maybe, I mean, but ha have you checked it out? Because I'm not talking about her, I'm talking about, like, the, the people that produced that. It's a production team called The Matrix. And they also did, like, this, this record and that record, and they had this other thing going. Like, you should check it out, you know, because you are what you eat. If you think you want to do this, you got to be able to, like, and somebody asks you to do apart from that Avril Lavigne song, you better be able to know what they're talking about. And I real, I was like, whoa, you know, I took that to heart, and I went out and got it, and damn, he was right. That record is awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty rocking. It's so I'm, I'm talking about the first one, you know. Dude, the production on that is... I mean, I still a lot of that stuff is like now my go-to tricks. <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of times people come to me and go, "I want to be a studio guitarist," and and I go, "Okay." And then I go, "Who do you like to listen to?" Uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't really get that request all that much, but. Uh... <laughs> right. Yeah, man. That's great. Well, that's great advice. And I know you're like, you're one of the best readers I've ever met. You've got like your right hand and stuff down. So I wanted to pass it on to Perry to ask a couple other questions. But again, man, it's just a delight to have you on the podcast. Thanks for giving us this insight, man. And Hey, Andrew, it's good to see you and, and virtually meet you here. Likewise, Perry. Cool. Yeah, I was going to, John mentioned the sight read and that was going to be the first thing I asked you. Uh, we have a I guess a number of mutual friends. I, I did spend eight years in LA and one of them is the great drummer and entrepreneur and mountain biker, Jamie Tate. And oh, cool. He, uh, I love Jamie. I, I remember on a gig somewhere, I was reading something and uh, I was like, oh yeah, this is kind of challenging, but you know, I'm, I'm a decent reader. I, I like, maybe I'm a little above average as a reader, but I was like, this part's kind of hard. Like this would be really hard to sight read. And he goes, oh, Senewit could do it. And <laughs> <laughs> I paid him to say that. And, you know, you hear about guys that have exceptional sight reading uh, abilities. And I'm just sort of curious, you know, if you attribute that to anything that you worked on maybe much earlier in your career or if it's something that came to you a little bit later. Can you talk a it's little bit about it? It's just having no life. Um, <laughs> but, it, I mean, in all seriousness, it's just like putting in hours and and sucking yeah. and doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, I will say there um, at, at Miami, there was a class called Sight Reading for Guitar, and that was a big help to at least kind of get you over the hump. I still was in the big band down there going, you know, doing the thing where you kind of turn down and hope nobody notices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we've, uh, we've all been there. But it was something that, you know, guitar players are notoriously bad sight readers, and... You know, going back to what I was saying about earlier, earlier about um, just sort of looking at at the the range of skills that people have and the things that I thought like I'm good at uh, hammering a nail over and over again. If that's a weird analogy to use, like I can do stuff that requires you to just sit in the practice room and keep doing it and getting a little bit yeah. better every day. So I thought maybe if I just keep doing it, I you know, and then it's that thing where like 
the closer you get to it, then the farther it moves. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, well, now I can read in this position, but, like, what about chords or what about real high or what about transposing the octaves or just transposing in general, you know? Yeah. So you never feel like, great, I got it. Like, I never show up to a session and not not scared <laughs> out of my mind, basically. Never happens because there's still things that they throw at you where you go, oh, man, what am I going to do? That's probably good to have a, just a little bit of, you know, fear to kind of keep you sharp. And yeah, keep you on I mean, fear is a good motivator, you know, for better or for worse. I, and I'll say one, you know, one thing that happened is when I moved here, get, actually, and probably one of those times I ran into Will in the uh, local 47 <laughs> parking lot, you know, there was like this scene of, of like rehearsal bands where you just show up on like Tuesday at 10 a.m. and you oh, read okay. somebody's charts down. So, uh, Will's laughing. So, uh, <laughs> so I would do those and somehow got a reputation as, as like somebody who could read. But then, because people would call me and go, hey, I heard you can read, want to come do my band, then I really felt like, damn, I got to actually work harder now. Because, <laughs> like, if going in there, if somebody, oh, this kid can read, like, you, if you suck, like, you, you know, you're just not going to get called back. And then that travels that word travels fast too yeah so it was almost like times two <laughs> scary to then have a reputation as like somebody who can read you know absolutely and i i think one thing that unites us all as guitar players is that need to be very determined at the things you want to be great at you know yeah. uh it's it's not an easy instrument there's a lot of obstacles in different ways i mean you can play the same note in three different places and you know it just takes takes a lot of kind of pounding the pavement and hours and getting your butt in the seat and like you're saying slowly progressing slowly progressing but then you see that the you know the goal is so much wider and that you know you're never really reaching a destination even if you are improving so it's exactly right it's yeah. really wonderful to hear you talk about that in relation to sight reading but i know it's in relation to every other part of music and guitar playing um yeah. one thing that i noticed i wanted to ask you a little bit about i was checking out the uh the album that you released second story and by the way it's great sounds really really wonderful yeah i really enjoyed it want to dig into it deeper but one thing that kind of uh struck me was you have a really interesting hybrid technique with your right hand you know i i use some hybrid stuff um but mainly when i'm trying to uh play harmony play chords with the pick you know but you use it to articulate single notes too in addition to your pick and i was kind of seeing you go between using only the fingers and then pulling the pick back, uh, if I was registering that correctly. Can you talk a little bit about developing that hybrid technique and you know, why you chose to uh, articulate that way as opposed to maybe just with the pick? Sure. I mean, I think it's on some level kind of unconscious, at least in the context of improvising and um, where there's really no path. It's more a matter of um, wanting to get certain sounds out of the guitar you know, like sometimes you want to dig in close to the bridge and have it be bright, and then other times yeah. you want to just use your fingers, and it, it's obviously a much different sound if you use your fingers. Uh, as far as how I got there, I studied classical guitar, so that gave me some kind of facility with the right hand. And also, back to the Steve Morse thing, he was he, there was always some kind of like chicken-picking element to his playing. So I didn't do like really a deep dive on that stuff, but I learned some like Albert Lee stuff or like Brent Mason solos off of records, you know, uh, getting back to the thing we we're talking about, you know, checking out those kind of records. And, you know, again, coming from that era of like 
big hair guitar players <laughs> where it's all about like flash and stuff you know the tapping thing that you're using your right hand over the i mean it's right, not it's a little bit uh different but just the idea i guess of having no barrier in terms of like i never wanted to be like this is how i play and be in a box you know whether it meant alternate picking or sweet picking or no pick at all I mean, dude, another guy that I, I just love his playing is Kevin Eubanks, and I'm, he's pretty much no pick. Um, there's a couple of his records that I listen to a lot where I think a lot of, of that stuff seeped in. You're getting a great sound. Um, I, was, I was really amazed by how seamlessly you can go back and forth from having the pick in your hand, or I guess it's still in your hand, but u utilizing it or tucking it away and then incorporating the fingers, and the tone seems to be similar uh, in in certain ways and uh yeah i was really really amazed by it and the record sounds great so thanks happy to check it out i would say you know one other thing that just occurred to me is like and it shows you how different areas of study can influence each other in weird ways down the road when i i went through a period for sure of like checking out um like all the quote-unquote uh New York saxophone player guys like Michael Brecker and Bob Berg and Dave Liebman, uh, etc., and transcribing a lot of that stuff. Or like the Coltrane, like I transcribed a lot of like a Love Supreme, you know, which some of that stuff just sounds terrible on guitar, actually. It's just right, like, so. dude, it's not the same instrument. Give it up. Yeah. But <laughs> having said that, trying to pull off some of that stuff, there's no way to like really do it because it's like the skips are so wide that I would also go well what if i i think that's where i started using it in more of like an improvisatory context mm -hmm. where i would pick one note down and then pull up with my middle finger like on maybe like two or three strings away kind of thing yeah yeah or and then also kind of go back and forth you know between the two notes <laughs> to your playing a lot because you know again you've you've passed me some really wonderful gigs and i've had you your playing as reference for i'm sorry <laughs> for the shoes that i need to fill so i mean i again man lots of props and man what a pleasure having you with us and i mean you know yeah. on a personal level i just would love to thank you for all the insight and opportunities you've given me you know i'm just glad i could help you know i've had when i moved here i reached out to a lot of players and some of them were were very welcoming and some of them were not and the feeling that you get when somebody's cool to you is just like you know you got to perpetuate that man you know yeah. people people help me out so i try and do everything i can to, to help other people out 
than you do. Makes the world go round, hopefully. Tell our listeners uh, where they can see you, where they can hear you, how to keep in touch with you. Uh, Well, I have a pretty unique name. So if you Google me, Andrew Sinowick is eight letters, S-Y-N-O-W-I-E-C. If you put that into any search engine, you will find uh, all you ever wanted to know. But you can go to my website, andrewsinowick.com, and you can... I have some videos on YouTube of uh, recording the record live in real time. You can watch it all going down. Yeah, I think also there's a tab on my site where you can kind of see some interviews I've done and uh, some other kind of video stuff. You can hear me on uh, your favorite uh, streaming platform. I guess you can still buy it somewhere, buy my record uh, Second Story. And I think I had a playlist for a while on Spotify of... um, kind of selected discography of some things that I've played on for other people. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. All right, man. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.